new recording. Yes. Thank you. I can count on you. Sometimes it doesn't matter what I say. <laughs> That's not to be recorded. Uh, um, <clears throat> only we have umbrellas. So I hope at some point you allow yourself to get soaked, to just be out there and allow the rain to fall on you. That's what we do here. So yesterday, we had a talk on staying put. And we stood put. We stayed put for a couple of days here. And now it's time to get up. This is always the last phase of a retreat, a sashin, you sit, you stay, you stay put, you settle, and then you have to get up. And you have to move into the world. So this talk this morning is about the need to get up, as well as the need to stay put. And this is what the Buddha told his first disciples. Go forth for the good of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the welfare, the good, and the happiness of gods and men. Let no two of you go in the same direction, Teach the Dharma, which is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. Proclaim both the letter and the spirit of the holy life, completely justified, fulfilled, and perfectly pure. Go forth. Go go into the world. This is where we live, in this dusty world. He got up, Buddha got up from his little mat of kusa grass. And that getting up to me, is just as critical to his awakening as his sitting was, as his staying put was. He experienced something in his meditation. He was drawn to the cushion, to the grass, to that place under the tree, in part because he had glimpsed something. And he remembered, after many years of wandering and trying all kinds of different paths, he remembered something, some experience that he had, 
that was more real than anything that he had learned from teachers or anyone else for that matter. What did he remember? He remembered a time when he was a child and he sat under a rose apple tree while the farmers were plowing the fields. And he experienced something at that age that was deeply profound. He experienced life as it was. Just without any commentary. And sometimes, as a child, we can do that without any interpretation, without any evaluation, without any storyline. Just this, the birds, the mice in the fields, eating the worms, the plowed fields, the sound of the engines. I guess they weren't engines then. The chariots, <laughs> the horses. Just life as it was. And he remembered that time. And there was something that he glimpsed. I love, that's a really wonderful word, glimpse. It really kind of connotes, doesn't it? I glimpsed something. Something appeared. And I invite you to examine your own experience, maybe as a child. Um, I know actually thinking about uh, the rain, I was remembering a time when I was standing <clears throat> at the window and, and it was early evening and the rain was falling off the roof line. It kind of is a little bit now. And just the way the light was, it was like tinsel. Just an endless stream of tinsel coming down. And I was in awe of its brilliance, of the brilliance of the rain. Similarly, I remember times walking in the woods uh, on a snow-covered uh, trail, and just the way the pine needles scattered themselves, it seemed like some special uh, graphic image that just for me, just to be seen in just the way that happened. It was that glimpse. It was so momentary, right? It was, and we remember that, that we had a glimpse into what is and the beauty of what is, mm -hmm. the astounding, miraculous, merest mystery of what is. Believe it or not, that's what brings you to this cushion, to this bench, to this chair. You glimpsed something. Buddha glimpsed something and wanted to follow that. That was something very real. And so he followed it, followed it in a number of pathways until finally 
just decided. It's not coming from the outside. Whatever it was that I'm looking for, that I want to follow, is right here in my own experience. When he sat under that tree, he didn't sit under there with a book or a teacher or a podcast. He sat there just being available to everything, to the to the universe. <clears throat> and he pursued that on, on that cushion of grass. And what was that pursuit? Staying put. Staying put and just continuing to be there. To be there to whatever was going to present itself. Now this reminds me of many years ago, uh, we lived, I lived, in my, my first marriage, I lived in a carriage house in Saratoga Springs. <coughs> and we wanted to furnish the carriage house with antiques. You know, Victorian, because that's the spirit of the carriage house. And my husband at the time would attend these various auctions. And one day he came home with this huge pool table, billiards table. It was completely overcome with dust and paint, and it was... It was a real monster, monster. And I thought, what am I going to do with this, this ugly, big, huge, you know, pool table? It so happened, when he had a reason why he purchased it, he glimpsed <laughs> there was a crack in the paint. And he glimpsed some beautiful wood underneath that crack. And he was, he envisioned that there was something really spectacular under all of that paint and dust and grime. And he set to work down in the basement to stripping all of that paint and grime and dust from this billiards table. And it was pretty remarkable. It was made out of rosewood. And there were beautiful mother-of-pearl inlaid designs in it. He spent probably over a year scraping. And he had to do it carefully. You, know, you don't just hack it off. If you, have the, if you have the feeling that there's something really valuable underneath there, you, you, you go carefully, but you go diligently. That's pretty much what we do. We scrape. We know there's, there's something really spectacular to be discovered, right? And so we don't take a torch to ourselves, we don't berate our, we don't make ourselves suffer like Buddha did 
you know, getting all emaciated and at the, at the, on the verge of death. No, I took some porridge and <laughs> sat down and sat with ease. Who knows for how long, some people say six days, <clears throat> usually the, le- the length of the sashim. And slowly, carefully, the layers began to disappear. It's not as if it, they did it all, the, all by themselves. They didn't just melt off. He had, we call this effort. That's one of the paramitas, right effort. Right effort, just the right effort. Careful, scraping, layer after layer, until this is what's there. This is what's there. This is what is. Well, most of us, and I would include myself in this, we scrape and scrape, and we get tired of scraping. (laughs) Or we, we... we doubt that there's really anything there um, because we haven't seen the whole thing yet. There were important things to do. You know, we stop. We stop the process. <clears throat> Buddha didn't stop. Scrape the entire thing off and didn't rise up until that happened. That's what one of the things that made his journey, his commitment, so special. He didn't stop. Didn't stop. So, as I've often said, and as it is said, what Buddha did is nothing incredible in in the way that we think, oh, that's so hard, that's impossible. It's not like building a rocket. Okay. What did we say? It's not rocket science. <laughs> Just sit down. <laughs> I mean, it's not hard. It doesn't take any special skill except persistence. Dedication, commitment. Anybody can do it. Just sit down, relax, sit with ease, but don't give up. Just stay the course until there's something really remarkable to be discovered. So he stayed, and he was awakened. And sometimes the story goes, Buddha sat, he went through all kinds of different stages of his meditation, and then he saw the morning star, Venus, signaling the dawn, light, Awakening, it's just like getting up in the morning. There it is. 
The world has co-arisen with me. This is, this is what it means to awaken, to open your eyes, and to see the light. Very direct and straightforward thing. And then it's sometimes said, well, he was awakened, and then he began to teach. Well, I read that, and I think, that's, that's it? <laughs> he just awakened, and then he started teaching? Clearly, that isn't it. He got up. He got up from sitting. But he didn't get up because his legs fell asleep. He didn't get up because his back hurt. Although it's known that he did have back problems. He was human. He didn't get up because he had forgotten, oh, I have an appointment. Better. He didn't get up because he was restless or bored. He didn't get up for those reasons. He didn't get up because the phone rang or someone texted him. <laughs> and he, had to, he had to see what it was. He didn't get up because he was sleepy and needed a nap. He didn't get up because he was hungry. He didn't get up because he needed to clean the refrigerator <laughs> or, or organize the junk drawer or clean the cat litter, or take the dog for a walk. He didn't get up for those reasons. He didn't get up because, oh, there's this great Netflix <laughs> series that I really have been meaning to watch. He didn't get up because the bell rang. There was no bell. Why did he get up? Part of his awakening, his getting up. He got up, I'm venturing to say, I don't know really why he got up, but I'm venturing to say that he got up because he had discovered something that made it necessary for him to get up. And what was that? Well, let's listen a little bit to what happened after his awakening. Then this occurred to me. This Dharma I have attained is deep, hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, excellent, beyond the sphere of logic, profound, understandable only by the wise. But this generation, this is in Buddha's time, 
This generation delights in desire, is devoted to desire, gladdened by desire. And for this generation, delighting in desire, devoted to desire, gladdened by desire, this thing is hard to see. That is to say, conditionality and conditional origination. That's basically the Four Noble Truths and dependent origination, which is the Twelve Links, which is part of the teachings. It's actually the first teachings that he offered. This thing also is hard to see. That is to say, the tranquilizing of all processes the letting go of all bases for desire, the end of craving, dispassion, cessation. But if I were to teach this dharma and others did not understand me, that would be exhausting for me. That would be troublesome to me. Wow. So he discovered something that you could say, how do you explain, how do you transmit this glimpse of something profound and something real and something hard that can't be... uh, can't be explained logically or rationally or even coherently. Further, these truly wonderful verses occurred to me that were unheard of in the past. This is what occurred to him. Now, Is it suitable for me to explain what was attained with difficulty for those overcome by passion and hatred? This dharma is not easily understood. Going against the stream, it is profound, deep, hard to see, subtle. Those delighting in passion, obstructed by darkness, will not see it. Such was my reflection and my mind inclined to inaction, not to teaching the Dharma. Then to Brahma, Sahampati, knowing with his mind the reflection in my mind This thought occurred. The world is surely going to destruction. The world is surely going to complete destruction. Wherever the realized one, the worthy one, the perfect Sambuddha's mind inclines to inaction, not to teaching the Dharma. Then Brahma said, Just as a strong man might stretch out a bent arm or bend in an outstretched arm, so did he vanish from the Brahma world 
and appear in front of me. Then Brahma said this to me, Let the fortunate one preach the Dharma. Let the happy one preach the Dharma. There are beings with little dust on their eyes who are perishing through not hearing the Dharma. There will be those who understand the Dharma. Let the fortunate one teach the Dharma. There will be those who understand. So this getting up and going out to teach isn't just an automatic thing. I'm enlightened and now I'm going to teach. He struggled. And certainly at the time, the whole orientation, as it is in some sense today, to be self-involved. The achievement at the time was to become a monk, to become an arhat, to live a monastic life, to just disappear from the world. And that was a powerful, you know, I've, I've seen something. Why should I bother with everybody else? I've seen something and I'm going to just take it into a monastery, into an ashram, somewhere where everybody else is seeing the same thing. Why do I bother with all these other people who will never understand? It's, it's, a, it's going against the stream. This, our practice is going against the stream of our culture. It's very clear, it should be patent now. that this practice is not in alignment with our culture, which is, as I I suggested, is based on, on on one hand, institutional greed. Me, I, me, mine. Profit. So if you achieved something, so not only that was very personal, but also that nobody else, nobody else would really probably even bother. Tell somebody, they say, you know, what do you, what's your religion? I'm Buddhist. Oh, okay. What's for dinner? <laughs> it, they're not interested. Or if they are interested, they're interested in arguing. And they're not really interested in in the teachings. And we're not, we're not evangelical. We don't try to convert people. We just practice. And that's teaching enough. You know? Teaching by example, we call it. So there was a real struggle, even against the culture of the time, which is, all right, just become a monastic. Become an arhat. Just go live in some bubble where... You can just live out your vision and your reality, right? So his, <clears throat> his decision to get up 
and to move out into the world to offer this teaching, as he says, not inclined to do it. It would exhaust me. It would trouble me that I, I was doing this was so antithetical to the whole movement of the time. Besides, you know, I worked hard for this. Why, why take it beyond me? So, my friends, my fellow Americans, <laughs> um, I want you to, to really consider how significant his getting up was, not just how significant his sitting down was, but his getting up to turn this wheel. I don't know the the physicists among us. If a wheel is really stationary, to start turning it. Once it's turning, yeah. But he was dealing with something that had never been done, never been introduced before. In in the Hindu tradition, the core core teaching was Atman, the separate soul, separate self. And so much of our own culture, Christianity, is, you know, the soul, the separate soul that has a journey that goes to heaven or goes to hell. This is totally not Buddhist. <laughs> you know, anatman, no self, non-self. Interdependence, inter-origination. So can imagine this person at re-entering a culture and starting to turn a wheel, the wheel of the Dharma, of the teachings, that it's very hard to get going. Even, the, even his five friends, he went, he was considering uh, offering these, his discoveries to two of his teachers that he had studied with. And he and they both had actually had died, so he that wasn't an option for him. So we thought, well, my five friends who I was practicing asceticism with, I'll I'll go to them and show them what I've discovered. Even them, they they rejected him originally. So even his friends didn't want to have anything criticized him. So what, what level of commitment, but beyond commitment, compassion? As we recited the Dharani of great compassion today. So what fundamentally brought him beyond his reluctance beyond his self, uh, self-awareness, self beyond his self selfish desires to just kind of live out his life 
living out that vision. What else could it have been except the love of all beings? And of course, one of the deepest discoveries that he made was this fact that we're all connected, that there is no separate Buddha. There are many accounts of what what his first words were after his enlightenment, but the ones I like the best are, I and all beings are awakened together. There's no me here. And so naturally, if I'm connected, if everything is my family, is actually who I am, of course, I'm going to want to share what I've learned because it's liberating, because it freed me. And naturally, the people, you know, if if something wonderful happens to you, of course the people you want to share with are the people you care about, the people you love, you know, right? Have this, share this, bring this. I remember another another one of my my husbands said to me. He said, the difference between you and me, Mado, is okay, this is I guess self complimentary. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll risk it. Uh, he said when your brother brings these wonderful pastries from New York to us, you put them in the freezer to share with the Sangha, and I eat them. (laughs) It's a very different orientation in life. This, This is Buddha nature. This is that what we call the turning at the base. This is really what that turning of the wheel is. It's turning at the base. And what's the base? I, me, mine. Turning. Yes. Toward all beings. From self-centeredness to open availability and compassion and care. To care for all beings. To offer the best that you have discovered to liberate all beings. And not to keep it in the freezer (laughs) for yourself. This is hard when you've got this luscious cheese danish or whatever your favorite cupcake is. <laughs> got your cupcake right there. I think I'll offer it to Michelle. I'm hungry for it. <laughs> but like What happened last week with the pencils? I hope you're all enjoying your pencils. 
It was enough for me to have the pencils. And then, that's a practice. It, it wasn't the easiest. I wouldn't have given the pencils away unless there was an occasion, unless um, Colin had asked about seeing the pencils. But it was an occasion for doing that. So it kind of, I don't know that I did it out of compassion. <laughs> I don't know what a pencil would, would but, but I think it was maybe felt you know, that it was just given away for the pure act of, yeah, have this, have this, do with it what you, what you would want. So that the teachings are the same. So again, go forth for the good of the many. <clears throat> Out of compassion for the world, for the welfare, the good, and the happiness of gods and men. Let no two of you go in the same direction. Teach the Dharma, which is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, and beautiful in the end. And notice the word beautiful. But it doesn't say, this is true. This is true in the beginning, true in the middle, true in the end. He says, this is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. This is not about truth. This is about beauty, the beautiful life, the noble life the expansive life, the life of the good person who we often say, they are beautiful inside. This is not about truth. This is about being beautiful and offering, bringing beauty, harmony, peace into the world. So go forth and nobody go in the same direction. (laughs) 